Welcome to the macro trading floor. This is Andreas Steno speaking, and uh, it's great to be back again this week because it's been a major week in international macro. Um, boy, we've had some moves in particular in rates markets, and uh, no one's better at assessing interest rate markets than you, my friend Alfonso Pikachu. Really? Well, we'll give it a try. <laughs> Off speaking here. So, um, massive move today in European and US, today being the 1st of December, by the way, mm -hmm. in uh, European and US rates. Uh, flattening of the curve, long end rallying like hell. Um, all started yesterday because our friend Jerome Powell actually had a speech and he said a couple of stuff that the market interpreted as Powell leaning towards more the core part of the FOMC than the Volcaresque part of the FOMC represented by our friend James Bullard, who calls for rates at, I think, 7% last time he spoke, mm. 6 7%. I think Powell distanced himself a little bit from that. Uh, I have my interpretation of where he's going, but you first, Andreas. Well, I, I think this is a biggie. Uh, so to be honest, one week ago, I wrote that I considered Powell to be leaning a little bit towards the hawkish camp uh, when trying to sort of um, put together the pieces of the FOMC right now. Uh, but obviously it is a consensus story within the FOMC now to lean towards a slowing of uh, interest rate hikes. But I think we need to consider why they're taking this step. Uh, and we also need to consider this rhetoric in light of recent data. Uh, and therefore, I am, first of all, I, th I see this as a clear sign to buy bonds as a tactical trade. Um, I also wrote that a couple of days ago. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure that this is a green flag for a write about everything else, but that's, <laughs> that's a completely different story. So you so, go. Let me tell you what I think. I think that one of the most important parts of his speech was when he dissected inflationary pressures into three categories. Um, I think he talked about goods inflation, he talked about services inflation, but then also services X shelter. Yes. And that was interesting because uh, Powell is not stupid and the Fed isn't stupid either. So Andreas, you and I discussed plenty of times that shelter inflation is a lagging indicator. It takes quite a lot of time for rent of shelter to pick up. And we have seen it in uh, late 2021 while the housing market was booming rent of shelter didn't result yet in the in the CPI, although, uh, you know, all the on the ground rents indication where we're going to the roof already. Mm. Same reason now, as negotiated rents on the ground are coming down pretty aggressively, because of measurement problem is going to be reflected in the rent of shelter anywhere probably like June next year, roughly. But Powell knows this. So the fact that he's splitting away that rent of shelter from the equation, probably is a slight hint of we understand that the core core inflation, if you wish, is slowing down. And you talked about goods disinflation as well for a while. So if you look at, at the entire picture, it's maybe like, you know what, I'm a bit more convinced that overall in 2023, core inflation is going to trend down to what we discussed being a 4% levelish by, say, mid of next year. The expectation from Powell is becoming more cemented around that base case. Now, Powell also repeated plenty of times 
that he wants Fed funds rates above the level of core inflation. He was very clear about that. But if you're pretty sure that core inflation is going to be at 35 to 4% by mid of next year, then you definitely don't need to press for nominal Fed funds at 6 or 7%. No. There is no reason for that. And I think that's where he's going. I think that's absolutely fair. Uh, I've basically been saying that. So um, that assessment is pretty spot on. But I also want to put emphasis on the underlying analysis of what's going on in some of these categories and services. Uh, one thing is to look at services X shelter. Another thing is to look at forward-looking gauges for the shelter component. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, you, you need to live on Mars to not see the signs coming out of the real estate sector right now. Uh, I can guarantee you that I follow this on a very structured and daily basis. Um, having worked in the real estate PE fund for the last 12 months, um, I'm out now. But in any case, what I see right now is a clear picture of an illiquid asset turning into a super illiquid asset. <laughs> and yeah. the best example I can give you is the bunch of uh, retail designed um, almost ETF-like uh, constructions for real estate investments. Um, people are trying to withdraw money from them. They can't because there is no, uh, basically no bid. <laughs> uh, and that is an interesting observation to make. Blackstone basically um, told clients that they cannot withdraw money from the, um, from the real estate fund. Uh, I think they managed to fill 43% of all withdrawal requests from November. Um, so essentially you cannot sell stuff right now, or at least not at an, at an acceptable price, right? Uh, so this is to me the first signal that there is a big gap between the seller and the buyer. And I can guarantee you it's not the buyer that will move back up again in this kind of environment. At least that, that seems very uh, unlikely to happen. Uh, so I also released um, a, a primer on global real estate markets today uh, on my research, Substacks, Dental Research. And I cannot um, see anything on the cards that will allow real estate prices to pick up again. I'm rather looking for a global base case, or at least the Western base case of 15 to 20% drawdowns. And then depending on your solidity of fundamentals, it could be worse or better than that. And let me just point out the top three and the bottom three. Japan is in the top three, so they have a fairly solid uh, fundamental setup, so it will be uh, less bad than that. But if you look towards the other end, um, we've got Canada, we've got Sweden, we've got most Eastern European countries, high exposure directly to the policy rate, high um, household indebtedness, and a pretty material rate shock over the past 18 months. So in such countries, I would rather look for 30 to 35% drawdowns. The good news, or the good news, the bad news is that there has never been a market where the housing market dropped 20% and it wasn't a recession. 20% drawdown in housing is massive. In price terms, it would only bring us back to, I think, early 2021, late 2020 kind of levels. But on a rate of change basis, 20% decline in the biggest asset class in the world, in developed markets, it's really, really large. It generally goes along with the recession which Andreas, I think, is getting a bit clearer if you look at the indicators coming in. Uh, this week we had retail sales, we had PMIs, and we had uh, some soft indicators from the labor market. And let me say a word on the latter, and I'll leave you to chat about re uh, retail sales. 
because I know you have you've been very vocal on the distinction between nominal retail sales and the volume of retail sales in an inflationary environment. So let's just speak to that. But we got today the biggest jump in the so-called challenger job creation survey. It's a US survey for uh, the pace of hiring effectively across industries. And it had the biggest jump since 2001, mostly driven by tech um, layoffs and complete freeze in hirings. That's correct. It's not mostly widespread, but um, tech is such an important sector of our economy today and very, very, very sensitive, of course, to policy making. So it makes sense that together with construction tends to move first, if you ask me. And the pace of deterioration has been very, very sharp. I personally expect negative non-farm payroll, so the definition of a recession, really, job cuts in America, uh, to happen anywhere between March and May next year. Uh, so we should, we should, I think we are getting the first preliminary indications that the labor market, the so-called last shoe to fall, is not falling yet, but about to fall, if you yeah. ask me. And um, as you rightfully point out, uh, the Challenger job cut survey um, on a year-over-year -year basis is looking worse than 2008, um, in momentum terms at least, right? So it is quite a biggie, and it, it's got a decent ex explanatory power on mm -hmm. non-farm payrolls with a, uh, with a time lag. But I, I wanted to highlight a few things coming out of Europe, um, and in particular the Swedish economy. Uh, I know the <laughs> Sweden is not of interest to many uh, listening to this podcast, but I think it's worthwhile following Sweden to the same extent that, is it, that it is worthwhile following South Korea. Because those two economies, they have such an open nature, such a demand-driven nature um, from a global um, impulse perspective, that they feel the heat from changing momentum in the global economy very early in cycles. Um, and if we look at, for example, the new orders, less inventories ratio, from the Swedish PMI published earlier this week, um, we are now in minus 15 territory in that spread, which is usually um, correspondent to PMI levels in the range of, say, 34 to 36 for the Eurozone. Um, and it's substantially worse than 2008 on these um, measures. So, I mean, who knows whether this recession will be deeper than 2008? I don't think so. But in any case, some of these sort of soft data surveys, they clearly point south in a direction that um, is very swift and speedy. So watch out for that first quarter next year in, in hot data. I think we will start seeing the cracks there. I really want to talk about how the market is positioned for next year when it comes to, uh, to growth across asset classes. But I think it's time first to invite our guest of the week, Andreas, and hear what he has to say about that. Yeah, all of this. And and one thing I would like to say before we invite invite him on the show is that obviously we've all been pondering about whether this Chinese story is going to save us in 2023, and he's got a very firm view on that. So I think that will be very interesting to discuss. Right. It is now my great pleasure to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor. Alex Campbell is a former commodity trader at Bridgewater Associates, uh, but he is now the founder of Rose Artificial Intelligence. It's very good to see you on the show, Alex. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. 
I'm a big fan of the show. Alex, um, a former trader at a hedge fund and now the founder of an artificial intelligence company. Please tell us a little bit about that journey before we jump to the macro discussion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of, I ended up in trading slightly by accident. I grew up, you know, relatively uh, poor outside of Boston, ended up going to college at McGill because they thought I was going to be a football player, but I was pretty good at economics and pretty good at, at CS. And so I bluffed my way to Oxford to do a, an MPhil in economics. And I was spending my time there trying to do, you know, what is now considered, you know, machine learning or whatever, and then was just considered a very bad master's thesis. <laughs> and I was spending all my time playing fantasy baseball and downloading Nate Silver's data from, you know, back when he was a baseball prospectus guy and just using it to just slaughter my friends. It was great. And, you know, my, my ex at the time goes, why don't you just do that for a living? You seem like you're a pretty miserable economist. Uh, and, and, and she was right. Uh, and so I, you know, looked around, ended up uh, catching on with Lehman uh, in, in London. This is, you know, 2007. So, uh, you know, I, I joined the 200 person analyst team. I find my way to the prop desk three months later. It's like, go find a job, right? Go get them coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, three months later, some guy gets fired. They give me a book, uh, you know, nine months later, I'm up $10 million and the bank is under. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so this was a very, you know, this is pre Volcker. This was when it was like the line between booking trades and, and getting trades was, was different. But, you know, we were doing systematic volatility arbitrage, convertible bond arbitrage, you know, a lot of really complex stuff and sitting next to the exotics team and and everyone's using spreadsheets. OK, so let's just start there. Everyone's using spreadsheets. They use code to do like complex algorithms and, and correlation work. But like the exotics guys are on spreadsheets, kind of the prop guys are on spreadsheets, the compliance guys are on spreadsheets, you know, the whole bank is run on spreadsheets. Um, and so when I ended up going and being fortunate enough to go to uh to go to Bridgewater, you know, so Lehman explodes. I go to business school for a couple of years out of Stanford and I meet up with Bridgewater. You know, I was like, this is the big leagues. These guys are the professionals and they are the professionals. And, you know, I'm an intern and, and they're pitching me on this internship and they, they drop this 400 page book of what's going on in the world on me. Okay. This is like, you know, join the internship thing. And I'm looking through this thing. I'm like, Oh my God, if I had this stuff as a Lehman trader, I would have been, you know, like that kind of attitude or whatever. And so flash forward, you know, three, four years, I'm now helping them, you know, manage a, a commodity portfolio that's tens of billions of dollars. And a lot of my life is finding data, cleaning it, organizing it, visualizing it, and then sharing it with other people, right? It can be the trading department, it could be the CIOs, it could be the clients, it could be the regulators, it could be the accountants, it could be, you know, that kind of thing. And I find myself doing this workflow over and over and over and over again, and also just seeing how, you know, those guys, which I think are the best in the world, built, you know, the way of thinking about markets and the amount of emphasis put on what you would call systemization, meaning you get to the end of your process, you make a trade, and then you get all worked up over the trade because it's moving around, there's risk happening, you know, you're, you're, you're paying attention to that trade. And you might have even forgotten why you put the trade on to begin with by the time you're done cashing out or whatever. And maybe, you know, you're betting on the euro because the interest rate spread was different and then the interest rate spread closes, but you're still riding the trade or whatever, right? And so I just saw how getting everyone in sync, as Ray would call it, both conceptually and also data-wise was enormously valuable, just so valuable. And I said, wait a second, you know, AQR is doing this, Point72 is doing this, Goldman Sachs is doing this, JP Morgan's doing this, Sequoia is doing this, everyone's doing this. So I went to work with some venture funds and started playing around with this idea of, you know, well, what if rather than 
it taking six to nine months to buy a time series, which is just insane. If you guys know how buying data works, it's just a horrible, insane process. It's like buying insurance, but worse, because you got to go back to your compliance team, right? I mean, just think about the irony of you're managing $100 billion of risk and to buy a $2,000 time series takes you nine months. It's insane, right? Now you have to do the, now you have to do the integration, now you have to do the cleaning, and you have to do the, you know, connecting to the system. You're just, it's just behind, just slow. And so I said, wait a second. First of all, that seems broken, right? But a lot of people try to like resell data. Quandle tried to do that. It was, it didn't work. Why doesn't it work? It doesn't work because what's valuable is not the inputs to the process. And I'll say that again. It's not the inputs. It's not the raw Bloomberg or the raw Fred or, you know, your special volatility data. Okay. It's the outputs of that process. It's what the human produces after going through all that pain after going through and finally making the chart and then saying here it goes and you know that it's complicated because what happened if you've ever had to do this where a client or a customer or a regulator or a, a counterparty or someone in your company asks for a chart you made two years ago <laughs> right you know that pain that feeling in the gut of your stomach oh my god i have to go remake this chart where is it how many files is it and this is independent of whether or not you're in spreadsheets okay if you're not in spreadsheets, visualization becomes even more complicated because you have engineering environments and things like Looker or Tableau or, you know, fancy GUIs that people put in top of you. And then as a finance person, you're like, I can't touch the data. It doesn't work for me. So, you know, long story short, long, long, I kind of always end up giving these stories backwards. Rose is a marketplace. Okay. It's, it's, we're, we're creating AI to help a marketplace that needs to happen. That could have happened 30 years ago, but it was too hard to find the outputs of somebody else's process. It was too hard to find a good one. It was too hard to evaluate it and it was just impossible to connect to it. So we are building artificial intelligence to allow humans to ask plain English queries to robots, financial questions. You know, it can be as simple as what's the S&P today? It could be what's the correlation of copper and, you know, aluminum. It could be what's the implied correlation of a, you know, Asian FX swap or whatever. There's a million types of questions and the limit is now no longer how smart the robot is. It's how many pieces of clean data are integrated into one platform. I perfectly know what you're saying because this week um, I published a, um, a global real estate outlook. Uh, okay. And I had a whole team looking into sensitivities in each and every single real estate market to changes in real interest rates. Um, so I know the fucking deal. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, like which real interest rates, two year, five year, break yeah. even, backward looking, ILBs, you know, inflation swaps, like do this for 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Spot on X, Alex. Um, but I, I also wanted to get your take on current events and sort of how to utilize this, this technology in a scenario like the current. And I've noticed that you've been pretty vocal on China. Um, and we've obviously had protests in the street over the past 10 days or so here. So from top, from a top-down perspective, what's your take on China right now? And what, is, what are some of the um, variables that you're watching? Yeah, so I think it's fair to critique finance people for having political views, okay? <laughs> Some of my views end up feeling political, but I would just give you the linkages of, you know, commodity guy tries to understand who the biggest demander is, trying to understand the financial system that's driving all that commodity demand, and then realizes that it's very opaque. And and so a lot of my work and a lot of the reason behind building Rose was just trying to understand and track what was going on in China. Just really trying to understand, you know, not just from a commodity perspective, but from an economic perspective, um, you know, what is now the biggest pile of money in the world, two times the U.S., really matters. And a lot of Western investors don't really 
um, perceive that. They still think of it as kind of an emerging market. They still perceive it as us, the dog, and them, the tail. And it's actually probably the other way around. And so I'm sitting there being like, wow, this is a huge, interesting problem. Um, you know, how can I understand this? So Rose was built to collect all this data and to understand, you know, how unsustainable is the credit? Um, you know, how does how do those pipes even work? Now, what that led me to believe was that the credit was unsustainable, that there was going to be a real estate bubble, that they had this gigantic asset, you know, explosion from, you know, complex linkages we can talk about later with the U.S. and fixing their currency. But the, the short term implication was it became very clear to me, and I put this on on Twitter, you know, about six months ago, that Xi could have his property lockdown or he could have his COVID lockdown, but he can't have both. It's just too much. You can't ask people to sit in their home off and on for three years and in perpetuity and then also crush the economic real estate bubble and expect them to just be happy about it, right? And expect them not to speak up. And so I, I think what's happening is is good in a lot of ways. And I think a, a lot of Western speculators or, or, or market participants are going to say, oh, you know, oh, white paper, you know, revolution or whatever. I don't think it's going to be a revolution. I think the the party has a lot more control. And I think what's actually happening is healthy. It's, it's healthy for the people to be able to say, hey, you made a decision based on some utilitarian calculus about protecting us, and we don't agree with that. And how can we communicate that when it's such a top-down system? Well, this is a mechanism. Now, we'll see what happens in the reply. It looks early days like a lot of the local municipalities, which is how they manage this stuff, are going more open. And they're saying no more lockdowns or less lockdowns. But that's a classic kind of, if you're a watcher of the CCP or the CPC, depending on your politics, you know, that's a classic one-two punch that they do, which is kind of like say a thing and then kind of do something else. You can think about the phase, you know, phase one trade deal. You can think about a lot of stuff in the South China Sea and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying it's even bad for them to do that. It makes sense. Nationalism, you know, we have tons of American nationalism in this country. Um, what does make sense to me is that they need a mechanism to communicate to their top-down authoritarian what's, what's actually sustainable and what's not. Um, and so I think, you know, what we'll see, I think I have more confidence about is that it looks like they're going to try to bail out some of these property companies. There was about, you know, five trillion of property assets that looked distressed. And I mean, bonds trading at 20, bonds trading at five. You know, this is what we use the tool for is to track every bond on all these property companies, thousands of bonds. We aggregate them up and we go, holy cow, they're down 75%. <laughs> and you can see this if you look at there's an ETF called uh, the Premier you know, Chinese real estate USD fund 3001HK in Bloomberg. And it was down like 75% at the lows. And it's now, you know, up 100% from the lows, I think, um, but still down 60% drawdown kind of thing. Meaning there's a ton of walking dead over there in terms of property companies because they overbuilt, they have too much inventory. And now they're in this weird position where they have to support the, the property companies that did all this stuff because they have all this inventory that they need to finish, right? But they, that's not really the problem. The problem is how do you generate six, five, you know, 10% growth, ha ha, not anymore, without a property bubble? Because that was the economy. It was, it was, I used to make the joke that the Chinese economy was basically like, you know, eating petroleum and iron and lighting them on fire to build buildings, right? And when that's no longer your economy, what are you going to point that thing at and how do you use it? And I think that's a very interesting question that, you know, is, is does, pass into the realm of like pure speculation. Let's assume that uh, you're right, that we will see further bailouts of uh, property companies into next year, um, potentially as a bargain to those um, protesting in the streets right now, uh, convincing them to stay in lockdowns uh, for a prolonged period into 2023 as well. That obviously means that 
the credit bubble will be kicked down the road uh, further in China if these bailouts will be implemented. So looking at the ramifications for commodities, um, your old favorite asset class, as far as I can hear, um, what's your take on spillovers to gold industrial metals from such a decision making in China? Yeah, I think most investors are underallocated to commodities generally because uh, they're kind of scary because investing in the commodity futures is really painful and I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> um, and they don't realize how, you know, short inflation they kind of are in a weird way, which everyone just figured out. So we're now learning that when inflation goes up, interest rates go up and there's bonds in the stocks, right? And bonds go down and stocks go down. It feels really painful. Everyone forgot that because we had 40 years of Volcker, you know, dividend we're now going to get the opposite of that. I think we're going to get, you know, more deglobalization. I think, you know, histor historically, the most inflationary thing in the world is actually conflict, great power conflict, competition for resources, supply chains getting broken up. You know, it's not like if the U.S. doesn't buy Russian oil at 60, that they're not going to be able to sell it to somebody else or that they don't get, you know, some that doesn't mess with the global oil market. Like it changes the oil market. It makes everything more expensive for a while. And then we figure out how to deal with it. That's what I mean by conflict is inflationary. Changing supply chains radically is inflationary, right? If Foxconn goes down because they have all these like you know, internal conflict, then your iPhones are going to go up, up in terms of how much they cost. So that is the trend that I see, you know, and I, it's pretty in the macro community now old news. Five years ago, wasn't old news, but that we're going to get more conflict, more deglobalization. That means the natural rate of interest, you know, the natural rate of inflation is probably going up. Now that's hitting everyone aging, right? And it's hitting the deflation that ought come out of China if they stop lighting oil and iron on fire to make buildings. So the question then really becomes, can they generate a consumer economy? And what kind of impact does that have on these asset prices? So for me, the, the kind of directive is the ones the most exposed to property are the ones that I'm the, the least bullish on. But it looks like in general, people need more commodities is what I would say. And and the purest version of that for me is usually gold, right? Just a, a shiny rock that's been valuable as a shiny rock for 5,000 years, probably not going to be not valuable as being a shiny rock in the future. Maybe we get some mi some asteroid mines and fix that, but you know, it seems okay. We'll watch out for that possibility. Um, and the problem with most, I think, especially Western or dollar based investors with how they think about gold and sorry for rambling a little bit here, but is that they think of it in terms of dollars. They look at the price of gold in dollars. You know, GLD is 162. Gold today is, I don't know. Let's look on the old Bloomberg, like 1762. So we think of that number as 1762, but what that number actually is, is the amount of dollars I need to give you to get your gold. So when we have a 20% rally in the dollar, because Powell is Volcker 2.0 or whatever, that means that gold being flat is amazing in dollar terms because in yen, it's up 20% and all these different currencies is up 20%. Didn't even do anything. You haven't even heard about it yet. So I really, really think I said this for years that the best hedge for what is this kind of wall of money potentially either getting way more inflated or collapsing is actually what I call gold in China, where you go long gold and you, instead of paying for it in dollars, you pay for it in RMB, you pay for it in CNH, whatever your funding currency is, Hong Kong dollars, another version of this, but it's a little more complicated. And you just think about it as, wait, if I was sitting in the what is now you know the largest monetary economy in the world and I was worried about it exploding, you have two possibilities. One is they print a ton of money and then the RMB crashes. Great, gold in China is going to do great. Okay. 
there's another one where they tighten, right? And the and the dollar goes up a bunch, right? Sorry, they tighten and and the dollar goes down and the RMB goes up, but you got your gold in that case, right? And then really the only outcome that you are really exposed to negatively in that case is both the Fed and the PBOC tightening at the same time, which is not going to happen, right? At least not right now. We, and, and in fact, the politics almost guarantee this, that there'll be more money printing. So I really like gold and you know other precious. I think food is another classic one. It also hedges your portfolio from this kind of conflict risk because if we do get any food problems, there's lots of you know rumblings about water issues. There's a huge band of dry countries in the middle of the world, like the Middle East and you know Northern Africa, some parts of, of Latin America, that are going to have food security problems. Again, conflict is inflationary. So I, I think that you know getting more commodities is probably good for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Guys, basically think of Curve like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines all your cards into one. It effectively helps you maximize your rewards. You also earn a 1% cashback on everything that you buy between now and the next six months. It is also useful to get on top of your cash flows by consolidating multiple credit cards into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve Cash to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link in the description list of the podcast and making your first transaction. So if you want to get your $20 in cash back, the referral link is in the description below the video. I will allow you to expand a bit on this thesis on Chinese and US business cycles and policy cycles decoupling from each other. Um, we've obviously seen it over the past two, three years uh, through the pandemic. Uh, and right now we have the biggest gap in interest rate space between US and China over the past th three decades. So why is that? And why do you expect it to persist? Well, I think we're getting news from Twitter every day that they're going to have to ease. And they're going to ease regulatorily and they're probably going to ease monetarily although they don't want to ease so much with the money that they undo all the work that they just did. So that's the that's the kind of constraint there. In the US, we just got a ton of tightening. You know, I'm not a person who thinks we're done with the tightening by far, but I also don't think we're like five, 10 years away. If you look at the oil and food prices, they'll all come down. You know, a lot of this supply chain stuff has come down. And all we have to deal with now is kind of, hopefully, normal economic cycle inflation tightness from labor markets. You know, labor is a little bit behind in the inflationary cycle. They need a raise. Okay, are we going to give them a raise? How does that work? Does that flow through perpetually? You know, that's, again, with the proviso, if we get in conflict, the whole thing goes out of the window. So we have this weird thing where conflict, you know, Ukraine is, is a great example. Ukraine happens, oil happens in the summer. Now policymakers are really hosed. What happens if that happens again? It can keep happening. It doesn't look like it's going to. Prices are going down. We're getting deflation. It's great. Maybe we'll even get a ceasefire. Oh my God, amazing. Right. But if you get more conflict in Europe or you get conflict in Asia, you can really know that that those those energy prices are going to go crazy. So the Fed is sitting there being like, look, if 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 we don't get any conflict, we're probably going to be fine. Maybe we go to five. Maybe we have to go to six. Oh, my God. The curve gets really inverted. We talk about it 10 years later in like market history class. China is going to ease. Right. 
And so then you get another of these kind of like dilemma problems where it was, okay, it was property versus lockdown. Now it's you get your peg or you get your monetary policy time. And you can keep filling that hole with foreign investors. You can play lots of accounting games, I think. And they have a huge current account right now, surplus, because there's no demand because everyone's locked down, right? But this is where you get that that trade-off. So I think they're going to stay easy for at least the next three months, six months. I think the Fed is going to probably a little bit tighter than people think because they're more worried than the market's pretty hopeful. And, and then that's a little more pain. Um, but if you look at like the volatility markets, like VIX is at 22. I mean, the markets are basically pricing us to get through this in, in a way with just some NPV problems, you know, in, in the middle of the year. Um, before we went on air, uh, we had a brief discussion on the surveys coming out of especially Europe right now. Um, being born and raised in Scandinavia, I typically watch Swedish data um, as sort of a cannery in the coal mine for Europe. Um, you can watch South Korean data as a cannery in the coal mine for, for Asia. Uh, and I can guarantee you that Swedish data looks absolutely abysmal right now. Um, worse than 2008 on most of the forward-looking gauges um, published by by the statistical office, etc. Um, so looking three, six months ahead, Given these surveys, given this extreme negativity in forward-looking growth gauges, is volatility too cheap, Alex? Yes. I mean, mm. I, a simple answer. As soon as they give a 10-minute answer, I mean, I think volatility is too cheap. I think especially options on volatility are a little cheap right now. And I think your work on the European you know, markets is great. I think people just aren't pricing in how long it takes monetary policy to affect purchasing decisions, to affect real asset prices, to affect supply chains, to affect employment conditions. And so surveys are getting crushed. You know, markets are down. Interest rates are up, but the Fed cannot back off until they get all of the pain that's being discounted by these surveys. And so we're in this really weird position where everyone's kind of like, yeah, we're all super bearish. We all agree we're super bearish, but the economy is not cracking yet. So we don't know what to do. Because if the economy really cracks, then yeah, maybe the Fed will ease a ton, right? And that's when gold really goes to the roof, gold and dollars at least. But we're not there yet. And I think that, you know, that kind of Goldilocks wishing, you just other people like that kind of betting. I think you might as well just bet on beta. And that's just your beta allocation, honestly, because it's always betting on that stuff to, to, to get better. I think the thing people aren't pricing in is conflict, more inflation, more energy pain, food prices going up. And that's volatility. Given your background as a um, commodity trader, uh, I wanted to pick your brain on asset allocation, broadly speaking, in an inflationary environment. Um, we've seen how classic risk parity strategies have been crushed this year. Um, the old 60-40 portfolio is it's not stone debt, but at least temporarily debt. <laughs> that's safe to say. Um, and it all seems to be as if it started when we breached 4% in the core inflation on the way up. So assuming that you're right, that we should sort of envisage a scenario with higher than usual inflation over the next decade, what's the best way to position for that, broadly speaking, not just in commodities? Oh, it's so hard. So, mm. you know, if anyone solves the answer to this next query, I'll, you know, start a hedge run with them. Ha ha ha. It's a <laughs> joke, but uh, kind of not because I've never got a good answer to it. Okay. It's name an asset that has a positive carry with a positive exposure to rising real yields. 
So real yields go up, this thing makes money. Okay, you could short tips, but shorting tips is a negative expected return. Well, when the real yield's positive. So, you know, when real yields are negative, it becomes different, but it, it's really hard. You basically can't do it. And, and then you add in currencies, right? And and give me a, an asset that does positive when there's a flight to concern. It doesn't exist. It just really doesn't exist, except for cash. US dollar cash or, you know, euro cash or... Or Swiss. I mean, I, I love the Swiss Ricks Bank, if I said it right. I mean, they've had 400 years of data. It's like them and the BOE. So those are my two favorite long-term central banks. And like, you know, there's something there. Like when you keep records for 400 years about your monetary system, you know, there's actually a lot of institutional knowledge there. So um, I think the what do we do about that? I think everyone's asking. Uh, Krugman's on Twitter this morning being like, maybe we should move to 3%. Some traditional economists finally said we should move the target. And it's Krugman kind of just like sliding it into some thread. That's ridiculous. No, I don't think we should change the the the, the, the target because we had a, a war in Ukraine. Like that that's a terrible idea. That's like kind of how you really get these things untethered. What we should do is tighten and just take the pain, right? And it, in the long run, it's the best thing, I think, for civilization, for rich people, for poor people across the spectrum, if you actually have good monetary policy, if you actually control prices, if you actually anchor them. 2% is close enough to zero, but you get some, you know, positive nominal growth rate. You start talking about three, four, five, man, you know, that's how you get emerging market, not to be too whatever about it. So I think, um, you know, that is the thing that is definitely hitting people now because most investors that are alive have been in an era with falling interest rates, falling inflation, and we're probably going to get both for the next at least five to 10 years. One thing that I've noted this year um, and... I've had to remind myself over and over and over about this this year is that as soon as you get a very clear spike in inflation, it's actually very tricky when you study a couple of hundred years of inflation data to find an occurrence without a double top in inflation. Um, and I'm not necessarily able to say exactly how this will play out, but it's very likely from studying 200 years of inflation that we will get another spike maybe in two years from now. Um, once inflation gets as embedded as it is currently in the system. So I perfectly agree with you that it makes a ton of sense to look very far back when assessing trends in the current environment. But we're getting to the point where we need you to come up with your favorite risk-reward trade in this environment. And <laughs> it's it's a tricky task currently. Back to your point that um, it's very tricky to find a, a good case with a positive carry uh, currently, um, given real yields are on the rise. And we've been stuck in that discussion week in and week out on this podcast that every time we find a good trade, it's always a negative carry trade. <laughs> so always. do you have anything with a positive carry or should we oh. just add another negative carry trade to the mix here? I don't know. So, I, so you know, I'm part commodities, part options. So my portfolio is all like call spreads and butterflies and, you know, weird funky stuff or whatever. That's all negative carry. So uh, you've asked the wrong guy. But no, I think uh, um, I will think on it and post. But I, most of my negative carry best bets are, uh, you know, I like gold in China. You can do it through ETFs. You go long dollars, go, you know, go long gold. Um, I like tips right now, tips versus treasuries. Uh, I do like that trade. You can do that in options. Uh, and then VIX, I like VIX, I think. Uh, but I think that this portfolio, which is a kind of an echo, I, I'm actually streaming this live. I, I took 20K and I'm just doing my interactive brokers on the internet. People can just watch me trade it with my friends. It's not, this is not a, a co-mango fund. There's no re representation of people should buy this thing. It's educational, right? It's supposed to be, hey, how would you manage this thing on interactive brokers? And 
Um, and we bought some VIX calls on that, right? But that portfolio is very negative carry and it's intended to be a counterweight to just a global asset beta portfolio, which most people should have by now and don't need from me. Um, but, you know, so I think that you should, I would wait really to go more long in assets. I think we're close, right? I think when really just look at bonds, when bonds really start rallying is your, is your tell. And until then I'm defensive until then I'm buying volatility I'm buying gold, I'm buying inflation. Alex, it's been a, a great pleasure to host you uh, at the real, uh, sorry, at the macro trading floor. And um, final thing, I um, I wanted to allow you um, to just briefly um, explain for our audience where they find out more about you and Rose AI. Oh, absolutely. So our website is still not great. Okay, I'm a great salesman here, but Rose.ai <laughs> is a great product and a kind of a confusing website because it's hard to synthesize that you're going to solve everyone's financial data pain in you know a one-page thing but you can see a lot of the outputs of the work on my twitter so i do a lot of charts from the product and and you know if i'm annoying and i'm spammy it's not intended to be that way it's more to kind of act in accordance with the philosophy behind what we're building which is data should be easy to find data should be easy to see and data should be easy to share and so i will occasionally on twitter just see questions or see people having conversations where they can't see what they're talking about because they're, you know, someone's running from a meeting, someone's on Bloomberg, someone doesn't have, and I'll just be like, oh, I have that in rows. Here you go, boom. And I'll just kind of plant the chart in the thread and kind of walk away or whatever. And the goal is to kind of create a, a, some sort of understanding or some sort of, you know, resonance with the community of like, that's what data should feel like. That's what our world should feel like. You know, you want to talk about break-even inflation in Sweden versus the UK. And in that conversation, you're looking at the lines that the tweet stream has all that information in it. And you don't have to spend like $500,000 and like $2 million of human capital to make those dashboards or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that's what Rose really is. So if you're interested in that problem, reach out to me over Twitter. You can also email us info at rose.ai or go log in. But it's not optimized for new users yet. We do most of our revenue still in kind of consulting Palantir type work where we go into really sophisticated financial institutions and we teach them how to use the tool and we solve their data problems. And then the goal is just eventually the robot will do that for us. Good stuff, Alex. Um, I uh, urge you to, uh, to look at Alex's um, Twitter feed. It is uh, extremely interesting stuff in there. Alex, once again, thank you for joining us at the Macro Trading Floor. Uh, an honor to host you and uh, we hope to see you back again. Oh, thank you so much. Honor to be here. Guys, we are back at the macro trading floor after a great interview with Alex Campbell, former Bridgewater associate and um, now running his own AI company. Um, really great guy, great storyteller and quite a compelling case if you ask me because, I mean, it, it's it's an old story obviously to be long gold as a part of your portfolio in an inflationary environment. But the leg that he has added to this trade is, is the interesting one if you ask me uh, because he wants to be long gold measured in the Chinese renminbi. Um, so here's the deal, Alf. Um, he wants to trade gold directly. So that's a long position in gold relative to the US dollar. But then he adds a position being long the US dollar and short the Chinese renminbi on top of it, making it net net kind of a positive carry trade for now, interestingly. Um, and at the same time, you kind of have an embedded natural counterweight 
in this basket. So what do you make of this case and the kind of environments that will allow it to, to gain? Okay, this is really interesting. Now, as my mentor used to say, Andreas, why do you add another leg? No, mm. he, he, always, he always used to challenge me on trades with two legs. Like, so why do you need another leg? Okay, let's see if we need another leg. So if we decompose the trade, you did it very right. It's long gold against the dollar, and then long the dollar and short the Chinese renminbi. Those are the two legs, right? And then combined, they come up as long gold versus Chinese renminbi. So long gold against the dollar makes money if real rates are going down, at least historically speaking, mm. right? Okay. Um, let, and, then, and then instead, long dollar against renminbi makes money if China remains closed, uh, slash there is a global deleveraging, slash mm. one way or another. So the trade makes a lot of money from two legs if there is effectively a recession or very slow growth next year. So real rates effectively stop going up because the Fed is doing enough damage. They don't need to keep pressing on real rates and so on and so forth. And the dollar appreciates with the lower real rates. That only happens if there is a very bad recession, effectively a, a deleveraging kind of recession. 2001, 2008 are your example for that kind of stuff. Okay, but now the question is, when do you really lose money? That's the, the real question. You know, two leg, it means you get both legs against you, which is when China reopens, I think, because the Chinese renminbi would appreciate, obviously, against the dollar, so you lose money on that leg. Um, and then China reopening would be very good for global growth, for commodities, for copper, for industrial commodities, and all of that. It might be scarce Powell from releasing his pressure on the accelerator of tightening, and it ends up tightening even more. And so real rates in the U.S. actually end up going up, and gold also loses money. So if China reopens like a stone, does the trade actually lose you money on both legs, or am I wrong? Uh, it could be. It could very well be. Um, but to Alexander's point on that exact question, and I think it's, it's a very feasible thesis, he considers it impossible to throw a humanitarian lockdown crisis at people at the same time as trying to pop the real estate bubble. You cannot do both at the same time. So if they want to prolong the lockdown, which seems likely right now, they will have to underpin real estate. So mm -hmm. by basically allowing the renminbi to weaken via adding credit. If they want to reopen, they will at the same time probably allow real estate to suffer, uh, which they have so far so sort of artificially underpinned to a large extent. So in any of these two scenarios, he actually feels comfortable that you will get a negative story on the renminbi leg. I think it's a feasible thesis. Um, and I have to admit that I, I'm actually pondering whether to try and implement this trade myself um, as a consequence of it. it. It's It will probably not turn into like... Uh, one of those three, four standard deviation trades um, because mm -hmm. it has this embedded natural hedge. But in any case, it seems plausible to me that we are headed, headed for a deleveraging cycle with a subsequent recession. And um, then the two legs could actually perform at least temporarily at the same time in this trade. But what, what, I, what I'm fearing a bit here, and we've obviously seen the first signs of that this week, Powell sort of refraining from um, continuing to warn us about higher real rates is obviously not good, good for the US dollar versus a lot of peers. We've seen that 
Um, the only thing that uh, scares me a little bit is that as soon as people get that message from the Fed, they start selling US dollars with an arm and a leg. We've seen that. But they tend to forget what's going on elsewhere, <laughs> just as this took center stage, right? So while Powell said this, Dutch natural gas prices started accelerating quite rapidly again. Electricity prices are accelerating quite rapidly again. We start getting more and more medium-term uh, weather forecasts hinting at a very cold snap in December. Um, I think it's right about the consensus among uh, meteorologists now that we will get a pretty cold snap. Uh, and elsewhere, if you look at LNG prices in Asia, so Japan, South Korea, uh, in particular, two countries very uh, dependent on natural gas from the sea, um, they are now rising with a time lag to the European uh, LNG prices as a consequence of Europe sort of directing right about every ship to Europe when they needed it the most. And now Japan and South Korea obviously need to do the same. Um, so if you know what I mean, it, it's very easy to look at the vanilla story right in front of you when Paul is speaking and miss the forest for the trees here. Very good point, Andreas. And uh, I see that you have... Uh quickly become an armchair meteorologist after uh, a virologist or whatever we needed to all become in 2020. No, but the, the weather forecast is really important for the energy security in Europe. Um, the dollar story is also interesting because lower real rates equal lower dollar. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at 2001 and 2008, 2009, you got lower real rates, but because the economy was trash, and there was a pretty large deleveraging process. The dollar kept appreciating because as you delever, you actually need dollars to service your liabilities if you are a corporate or a household in trouble. So the dollar keeps appreciating. It's not that clear cut uh, on the effect story. What I personally find very clear cut um, as a risk reward assessment here, we discussed this already a couple of times and, and a month ago, I think. There is no freaking reason why 2023 in markets and the economy shouldn't be a reflection of the monetary and fiscal tightening, massive pace of tightening we have seen in 2022. There is no reason. So as that happens, normally the economy should take a very large hit and inflation as well should show down, slow down pretty dramatically, especially in the second half of next year, when all this you know, calculation rent of shelter delaying effect are basically over. Uh, Fed funds, uh, Fed funds prize that they were, I mean, until the big rally of today, Fed funds prize that four and a half percent by the end of next year. I, I really cannot reasonably see a way that Fed funds can stay at four and a half percent as the economy has gone in a proper recession with earnings destruction and job market losses. I can't see that. No. And simply speaking, one thing is that Powell is now moving towards 50 basis points or 25 basis points for the next couple of meetings, whatever, right? But they're not talking about ending QT. They don't even debate it, no, as far as I can see. Um, so, I mean, that's a very mechanical headwind to assets in general that keeps underlyingly um, pee you in the head every month if you're long, to be very, very blunt. And... I think that is the ultimate pivot that I would look for to turn around on my negative view on earnings and stuff like that for next year. Because obviously, if they start 
restart the printing press. I hate that word, but if they do that, we saw that in Q2 2020, then there is no reason to lean against it because everyone is just put, pushed out the risk curve. But right now they are asking you slowly but surely to fill a gap at the very safest part of the risk curve, which means that someone has to leave further up. Yeah. So today we got a big rally as well at the front of the US bond curve. And so far the market had refused to do that because Powell had basically promised to keep Fed funds at four and a half to five percent throughout next year. So the rally in bonds only came from the long end, which led curves to flatten to incredible levels, negative 100 basis points between some slopes, right? For the first time today, the market is trying to challenge whether the Federal Reserve can really keep rates that high for that long throughout such an economic slowdown. I personally think that two-year rates at 4.3, 4 4.4% in the second half of next year are going to look like a pretty good buy in the portfolio when inflation is coming down rapidly, there is a recession, growth is coming down rapidly. Think about it, the Fed has a dual mandate, price stability and um, full employment, right? Those are their two mandates. And once you get inflation coming down in the right direction, and once you start seeing job losses, what's the reason to tighten up and to keep rates at 4.5% for that long? And don't, don't forget, Andres, in a recession, the Fed on average cuts 300 to 400 basis points. That's not priced in forwards anyway. One year, one year forward, one year, two year forwards. It's nowhere priced. So the front end of the bond market, I think, is the, the real indicator uh, of whether we are walking into a recession. And I think there are some opportunities there. Yeah. So here's my thinking on how a central bank works in relation to public pressures. <laughs> and I want to rant about that three minutes before we close the show, Elf. When the Federal Reserve launched average inflation targeting when inflation was way below the target. Um, it was a free lunch for them to say, well, we can easily lean back when inflation hits levels above the target and do nothing about it because we've undershot for quite a while. It's a whole different beast to continue with that rhetoric as soon as inflation is above the target, in fact. And we saw that quite clearly towards the end of last year hey guys, why don't you do something about this? And even though they are currently sticking to that view that we will keep rates elevated just to ensure that inflation does not rebound as soon as we give up on it, it becomes a whole different beast to defend that view as soon as you get layoffs. I agree. Yeah. I just and, agree. and therefore, even though it may be the sound view and it may be the view that they actually have, it's just tricky to keep that view when shit hits the beep. Uh, and therefore, I think they will be challenged quite dramatically during the first half of this uh, of, of next year in that view. Uh, so therefore, I agree with you that it makes sense to buy two, three-year bonds now um, as a consequence of that. And ultimately, let me say this, um, and now I've done my tinfoil hat, I am scared that we end up with a double top in inflation because of it. And I've started pondering whether it is a feasible scenario before we return to low levels of inflation again, because I think we ultimately ultimately will. But I, I tend to think that we get a, a double top inflation scenario with another spike to high levels, just because we reverse course too early. Mate, as a, a good hedge fund investor once told me, Alf, get your next macro move right. We'll talk about the one after that later. <laughs> right? I think he's right. I think he's right. Um, and then before we leave uh, people, let's um, 
blatantly sell our products and remind them that I have a research platform, it's called the Macro Compass, different subscription tiers for different kind of investors from retail to institutional, and my buddy Andreas has one too. Yes, you can go to stenoresearch.com and check it out. Um, I'm launching the platform uh, in Jan next year um, with a very clear focus on Europe. Um, so um, a lot of stuff is going on in Europe right now, and I think it's underreported in many uh, corners of the world, in particular in the US. So uh, go check us out if you want to cooperate or if you want to subscribe. Um, Elf, let, let's leave it than that. And I want to conclude with the final remark. I think the reason why you love looking at the next trade to a larger extent than me is that I'm born and raised on the sales side. So oh. as, as a strategist on the sales side, you, you always want to be very early on all stories because then you get all the fame for them. Um, while if you're actually trading uh, and I'm trading now, then it's probably better to just focus on what's just ahead of you. Yes, I mean, <laughs> if I can get the next one right uh, on average uh, with 55% hit rate and I can protect my downside, I'm happy with that. The next, the 3D chess, I leave that to uh, former sales side people like you. <laughs> thanks, mate, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll talk again next week here on the Macro Trading Floor.